I grew up hearing Bible stories. I went to Sunday school almost every week as a kid, and I listened to the lessons and I sang the songs. And as I grew older, occasionally I'd pay attention when the preacher would stand up and talk about the gospel. The more I heard, the more the stories began to fit together in my mind. Now, I wasn't reading the Bible myself, mind you, so I I was wholly dependent on my teachers. But the more I heard them speak about the hope, about the shape of the scriptures, the more I began to understand the shape of them, or at least the shape that was presented to me. So here's the thing. I was told in not so many words that the Old Testament built up a tension, a rising anticipation that a Savior was coming. I was taught that as the Old Testament progressed, the expectation for the great Savior King was building and was building and was building until by, by Malachi, the people of God were just sitting on the edge of their seats, desperate for a glimpse of the king's shadow. And that much I still believe. But the impression that I received was that all of that built up tension, all of the rising anticipation was resolved when Christ came. In other words, the grand mystery of the scriptures was solved. The case was closed. We have the answer and that's that. Now all that's left is merely to enjoy the knowing it and to mention it to as many people as possible so they'd know it and to look forward to the grand vacation in the sky. That isn't the shape of the Scriptures. There is indeed a rising anticipation. It builds and builds in story after story. The pace quickens and if you're reading rightly, your heart beats along with it. A longing for the coming king of Israel swells as you turn the pages. But let me be very clear here. That longing is not merely to know who the king is or to know how it is that he saves God's people. That longing is to see the kingdom of God here permanently. That longing is to realize the promised peace, to see suffering Cease to rejoice before the throne of the Son of David and to forget all of those past sorrows. The longing, the anticipation that builds in the Old Testament is an anticipation to actually stand with my own two feet before a real tangible throne upon which a living, breathing king welcomes me into a real life, never ending kingdom. And brothers and sisters, that anticipation never resolves in the New Testament. The building anticipation to see the King, to bow before Him and to enjoy His kingdom forever, that building anticipation keeps building in the New Testament. And as you read the words, to live is Christ and to die is gain, and let us run the race with endurance, and the one who conquers I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. As you read those words, you will be longing for the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
And that longing overcomes all the trifles and the distractions of this wilderness. And as you turn the last page of this beautiful book, you can't help but repeat over and over the words, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm not going to resolve the building anticipation today. I want to stir it up. I want to throw gasoline on that fire. So that as we speak about Jesus, the true Son of David, you can't any longer be satisfied with the ridiculous distractions that surround you. I want you to leave this place single-minded. I want you to leave this place anxious for the coming kingdom of Jesus. And that's the point. It's the point of the Scriptures. To stir your longing for the coming reign of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Today we're going to quickly reread the promise that was given to David. And now, we, now that we know that this promise absolutely could not have been, referred, been, been referring to Solomon, now that we know that this promise certainly could not have been referring to an ancient king of a collapsed kingdom, we're going to look forward into the New Testament to answer two questions. One, who is the son of David? And two, how will he save God's people? All right, let's get to it. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 7. I've been trying to bring a real, actual Bible here uh, instead of just reading from a manuscript. And uh, so then when I tell you to turn someplace, I, I get like the old Bible drill feeling like I'm racing you to get there. So just, just so you know, hopefully that's helpful. Everybody there? All of your body, Bible, not body. That'd be weird. All right, read with me. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about you in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, before we get into the promise itself, I want you to remember that this passage represents the summit of David's life and reign. This passage opens with David on his throne, safe from all of his enemies, enjoying the wealth of a prosperous kingdom. He's literally sitting around reflecting on his own success, which isn't, by the way, a proud selfish thing to do at this point because God has miraculously blessed every episode of David's life. Not long ago, this guy was a shepherd, the youngest of eight sons, a relatively small house in a relatively insignificant town in Judah. David had no aspirations. And then God stepped in and he anointed him king over all Israel and handed him to him strength to slay giants and leadership over Israel's armies and the heart of Israel's people. And right here, at the highest peak of David's glory, God speaks these promises. I want you to see that the author means for you to understand that David's life does not terminate on an ancient people. The the purpose of David's life, the reason for God's miraculous work to see a shepherd become a king is greater and broader and wider and fuller than David's four decades over a fallen kingdom of ancient Israel. This promise gives you the telescope from 2 Samuel, gives you the telescope to see God's greater purposes. This promise allows you to stand at the heights and understand why God's done everything He's done and what God has in store for His people and their king, the son of David. Let's look really briefly, a bit closer at the promise itself. There are three major features of God's promise. One, God promises that David's name will become legendary. Two, God promises to make a resting place for His people free of suffering. And three, God promises an heir who will reign over God's people forever. And perhaps the most important connection I want you to make here is that this last promise, the promise of an heir, the son of David, who will reign forever over God's people, that last promise is the means by which the first two promises are accomplished. Without the son of David, there is no kingdom of peace. And without the kingdom of peace, David is merely an ancient king who lived and died. All of these promises hinge on the nature and work of the Son of David. And we don't yet know who that is. And we don't yet know how He does it. Now, some of these answers are whispered in the prophets. And some of these answers are implied in other passages. We spent a a bit of time last week exploring those connections. But what I want to do today is I want to skip ahead in the story. And I want to answer those two pivotal questions. The two questions that God's promise to David don't answer. One, who is the son of David? 
And two, how does he save God's people? So turn with me to Acts 13, verse 16. Anybody there? So, just to give you an idea of context, I think, I think the context here is pretty funny. We're not going to get into it. But basically, Paul and his buddies have just been sent by the Holy Spirit and by the church of Antioch to literally change the world by the power of the gospel when they happen upon Antioch in Pisidia. And these guys are Jews, right? So they're in the habit of going to synagogue on the Sabbath. And this time they walk into the local synagogue and sit down and listen as the law and the prophets are read over the other Jews. And and that's where the story turns. The locals invite Paul and Barnabas to give a word of encouragement. They don't know these guys. Now, I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure this isn't exactly how it happened, but it reminds me of a few occasions where my youth pastor had neglected to prepare a message and was suddenly faced with a 45-minute void to fill. And he just starts asking people questions, but that's kind of what you see is like, Everybody's just, there's a, there's a silence after the passage is read and then somebody speaks up and says, hey, do you guys have a, have a word of encouragement to bring? I'm sure that guy wasn't expecting the sort of encouragement that Paul was about to give. Pick it up in verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, men of Israel... And you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arms, He led them out of it. And for about 40 years, He put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, the man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, 
To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who, have come up, who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. And was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that this, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Oh, what, a, what a sermon! It would be probably better, guys, if I just stood up and read that over and over again. (laughs) But let's dive in. First, I want you to notice that this sermon hinges on David. Notice how briefly Paul summarizes the history of God's people. Not even a mention of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. No mention of Moses. Can you imagine somebody standing up, giving a whole bunch of Jews, a history of their people, and just blow over those names? Can you imagine? All this took about 450 years. What a sentence. (laughs) And after that, he gave the judges until Samuel. So in a flash, Paul rushes through 450 years of history. And just then, his pace slows dramatically. Right? Quick mention of Samuel, quick mention of Saul, and then this. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. As soon as he mentions David, Paul stops. Did you notice? And he begins referencing the Scriptures. He's dwelling on David. He mentions that God has raised up David to be their king. He mentioned that David has a heart like God's, that David's will is to do God's will. And then, without skipping a beat, he leaps 1,000 years into the future. Of this man's offspring, God had brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So look, it seemed brash enough for Paul to skim over the first 450 years of Israel's history in a rush to get to David's story. 
But after just a moment's reflection on David's heart and David's throne, to wholesale leap over a thousand years in order to introduce a man whose recent crucifixion was barely news enough to ripple beyond the boundaries of Israel. How could Paul make a decision like that? How could Paul summarize the entire history of Israel by recounting the kingdom of David and then claiming that David's son was here? Look, guys, it only makes sense if Israel's hope hinges on the son of David. You have to understand Paul's audience. He's in a room full of exiles. He's in a room full of Jews with no true home. With no true kingdom. Israel is occupied. And before that it was occupied. And before that it was occupied. And before that it was crushed. And before that the people of God were cast away from their homes in exile and slavery. And before that they were besieged. Every generation. Since the death of Solomon. Every generation of Israel's faithful has looked forward to the promised son of David. Every generation was raised on these promises. Every generation of suffering slaves was raised on the bread and butter of these promises. Yes, our days are dark now, but a son of David is coming. And he will rescue our people. And he will establish our people in a land of peace. Remember, when you're tired in the fields, when you're being beaten, remember that the son of David is coming. And here's Paul in a room full of Jews whose fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers whispered bedside tales of a promised king who would rescue and restore the people of God. Here's Paul saying, in no uncertain terms, your king is here. That's the answer to our first question. Who is the son of David? It's Jesus Christ. You want proof? From whom? Luke, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will what? Give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Sound familiar? What about Peter? Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Not proof enough? What about the author of Hebrews? A long time ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. Amen. After being after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which to which of the angels did God ever ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you or again, listen, I will be to him a father and he shall be to him to me a son. Where's that coming from? The promise. Not good enough? Would you believe the testimony of Jesus Himself? Revelation 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Amen. Who is the son of David? Jesus Christ is the son of David. It is the testimony of all the scriptures. All the hope of God's promise hinges, promise to David hinges upon the work of the son of David. And that's why it's perfectly appropriate for Paul to skim 1,450 years of Israel's history in order to get to David and to David's son. Jesus, the King of Israel. So that's the answer to our first question and the simplest of the questions. Let's move on to the second. Pick, pick up Acts 13 in, in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Okay? So we're here to answer the question, how will the son of David save God's people? Paul gives three answers. First, Paul says that Jesus Christ died on behalf of the people, just like the Scriptures promised. Listen to this. This is skipping ahead one paragraph. Paul says they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And then in verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Follow Paul's argument here. Jesus fulfilled the promises of the scriptures by dying. And every faithful Jew in the synagogue is thinking, which scriptures? And then Paul says, Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And then, just then, they remember. Just then, they remember all the promises of the suffering servant. Just then, these words are called to their mind. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. When Paul speaks these words, the Jews in the synagogue are beginning to ask, Is this he? Is this the suffering servant? Could the suffering servant be the promised son of David? How can, this is a good question, how can a man who died on behalf of the people also reign over them as the king forever? And that's Paul's second answer to our question. Take a look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to us who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And now we are his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And he finishes, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. How can the suffering servant whose innocent blood is spilt to make a sinful people clean, how can the suffering servant who dies simultaneously be the promised son of David? How can someone die on the one hand and live and reign on the other? Here's Paul's answer. Jesus Christ died on behalf of the people just like the Scriptures promised. And Jesus Christ was raised from the dead just like the Scriptures promised. Paul says Jesus Christ is the suffering servant and the son of David. Because God raised him from the dead and now he'll never die again. Jesus Christ died by the hand of God's own people. Yet God was working despite their wicked hearts. God was working to save his people by finally and forever defeating sin. God was working to pour out His wrath on His Son instead of His people. And when that good work was finished, God moved in power to raise Him from the dead. And Paul doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't just stop with that mind-blowing message. Paul has the audacity to proclaim that this too, the resurrection of the Son of David was promised in the Scriptures. Listen to his words. He says, As for the fact that they raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. And he says in another psalm, You will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Paul follows the logic of God's promise to David just like David did 
when he wrote these songs. Paul says, look, if the son of David is supposed to inherit the holy and sure blessing of David, which includes a forever kingdom and a forever throne and a forever people, then a son of David must have defeated death. He must have. Mortality doesn't sit on a forever throne. Frail, weak, temporary men don't wear forever crowns. This is how we know that David wasn't the answer to the people of God's problems. Because David died. We've all been waiting for years and decades and generations and centuries. We've been waiting for a son of David who does not die. Because that's the only way that the promise of God can be fulfilled. How does the son of David rescue the people of God? One, Jesus Christ died on behalf of God's people, just like the Scriptures promised. Two, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, just like the Scriptures promised. So what does that mean for the people of God? Remember our question. How does the Son of David save God's people? If this Jesus, whose innocent death was promised centuries ago, whose defeat of death was proclaimed by the pen of David, if this Jesus is indeed the Son of David, what does that mean for the people of God? That's Paul's third answer. One, Jesus Christ died on behalf of the people. Two, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And three, because of Jesus' sacrificial death, And resurrection, the people of God are free. Listen to Paul's final words. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul's words make the most important connection. Paul's words answer the question, why? Why would the son of David die, though innocent? Why would the son of David be raised from the dead, never to see corruption? Why is this important to me? Paul's answer? Freedom. Why did Christ die? To free you. From the tyranny of the law. You cannot bear that weight. The demand of the law, the demand of righteousness is too heavy for you. You will collapse under that weight. You are hopeless under all the restrictions, all the expectations laid upon you. Righteousness, guys, righteousness is beyond you. Everybody repeat after me. Righteousness is beyond me. And in your failure to keep the law of God, you were every day earning the terrifying wrath of God. Take hope. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. From the moment you first failed to keep the law, you had earned God's wrath. You had borne the weight of your own sins, hopeless before the judgment that awaited you. Without help, You had no hope. Your sins are too heavy for you to bear alone. 
And the expectation of righteousness embodied in the law of Moses was too much for you. You needed a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. Jesus died to carry the weight of your sins. Jesus died to bear the blow of God's wrath. So you didn't have to. Amen? Jesus' death means you don't need to die anymore. Jesus' death means you don't bear that judgment any longer. Jesus' death means that you needn't any longer bear the weight of the law nor the fear of the specter of God's wrath. It is finished. Three of the sweetest words in the Scriptures. He has done the dying for you. And that's not all. He's also done the rising for you. In His death, Jesus secured forgiveness for His people. In His resurrection, Jesus secured eternal life for His people. The death and life of Jesus means freedom for the people of God. That's Paul's answers. These are Paul's answers. Who is the son of David? His name is Jesus. And how will he save God's people? He has secured their forgiveness by dying on their behalf. He has secured their eternal life by rising from the dead. And because of the life and death of Jesus, the people of God are free. So what? Christians? So what? What does that mean to you right now? First, believe and be free. I promise that you still do, on some level, bear the weight of self-justification. Bet. How do you respond when your friend or your spouse or your employer accuse you? How do you respond? I've got this miraculous ability. It takes me quite some time to prepare sermons. But on the event of being accused of having failed in some way, instantaneously, I can present a 10,000 word argument with 19 different phases as to how I, I am justified in the way I behaved. Do you do that too? <laughs> Be free. The worst thing that could have been said about you was said on the cross. You don't need to justify yourself any longer. Christ has already, in his death, confirmed that you were a liar and a murderer and an adulterer. Be free from the burden that you bear to prove to everyone around you that you are righteous. You are not righteous except in Christ. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. I was, we had these really faithful guys that go to a small Baptist church in our neighborhood going door to door preaching the gospel. And you know, they came and asked me if I knew Jesus. We talked about it for a little while. And 
And then I said, I'm glad you're here. This neighborhood needs Jesus. And you know what this guy said to me? He said, we all do. (laughs) You too. I'm in Christ. You're probably, if you're here, I know most of you. I know you're probably in Christ. It doesn't mean you stop needing Jesus. Forget this perception that we carry along with our traditions that that once you're, it's like a transaction. I'm in Christ because I prayed this prayer. I'm in Christ because I demonstrated faith and now I'm good. Every day you need Christ. And He will teach you how to stop bearing the weight of justification. I think what He means when He says, Come to Me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All the righteousness you need is in Christ. Believe and be free. That's the first way you can respond to this sermon. The second way you can respond to this sermon, it is Missions Month, International Missions. In September, every September we celebrate God's faithfulness to send a people to every tribe and tongue and nation. We dwell on it. We think about it on purpose. We support our missionaries on purpose. We even get a chance to celebrate the return of one of our missionaries. Listen to Paul's last sentences. Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone, Everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everyone who believes. Second point of application. Believe that everyone who believes can be freed. There is a level of audacity in believing that you can be freed, but maybe not that guy. Everyone who believes can be freed. Turn back to 2 Samuel 7. Hold up your Bible when you're there. We didn't read it this time. We read it last time. This is David's response. Let's start in... Verse 19, yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come and listen. Listen to what he says. And this is instruction for your people Israel. That's not what he says. He says, and this is instruction for mankind. Everybody. The message of the son of David is for everybody. Everyone who believes. Believe that. Believe that it's for everyone who believes and then go. Go yourself. Or send someone. Or reach out to a missionary and say, thank you. I believe that everyone who believes can be freed. You're proclaiming the message of freedom to the nations. Thank you. Praise God for His grace. To do for that guy what he has already done for me. Amen? Now, let's celebrate that freedom at the table.
This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.